We'll be starting in verse 8 of chapter 37, where we left off last week. Question for you as we start today, what is your story? If someone came to you and said, give, give me your story, tell me what's up, tell me what's happened, how did you get to the point you are today? Where would you start? What would you say? What would be the key points of all of that? Would that include marriage? Would that include kids? Would that include your parents from the past? Would that, you know, you got all of those things, right? What is your story? Jenny and I were up in Yosemite the last two days, went up there for uh, just uh, overnight, and it's so fun to the fact that it's only four hours away to go up there. It's so beautiful. And so we're up there, and we're at dinner, and there are these two couples that were next to us, and right when they got their meal, they, they started to pray. They all grabbed hands, they prayed together, and I was like, this is cool, this is cool. And so later on, after they got done eating and everything, they asked a little bit about themselves, and they're from Florida, and they're there, and they, they were talking more and more about church committees and search committees and different stuff like that amongst themselves, and I was like, I gotta say something. Because I just want to know more about their story. I want to know that I, I found out they're looking for a pastor. They asked me if I wanted to be that. And I was like, that's pretty interesting. You haven't interviewed me or anything. Yeah, that sounds desperate. Um, not sure I want to be there. Uh, but it was just one of those things that you want to hear the story. You want to hear the story. What sort of story have you fallen into in your life? Uh, we had a lot of homeless people that walk up and down the street here. And uh, two weeks ago, I asked one of the guys, hey man, how did you get here to this point? He didn't appreciate the question very much, but he told me a little bit about his story, and uh, his story was pretty tough. It's a tough story. And I think one thing's for Sure, no matter what your story is, it's going to demand your all because it's your story. It's the story that God has put in front of you. You need courage to live out the story that God has put you in the middle of. For some reason this morning, you are at West Hills Church. This is part of your story. And it takes courage to live out the story that God has put us in the middle of. Christian courage really is the willingness to say and to do the right thing regardless of the earthly cost because God promises to be with you, to support and help you and save you on the account of Jesus Christ. And when you're living that story, the act that takes courage and there'll be many of them, right? That act that takes courage, some of those are painful. It may be physical, it may be mental, it may be a confrontation, it may be a controversy. But the Bible says that Christian faith has the power to, as 1 John 5, 4 says, overcome the world. Our faith in Christ overcomes whatever is going on in the story that we are a part of. It means that this present age, this present evil age that we are in, cannot and will not squeeze us into its mold when we have courage to live out the story that God has called us to live out. Faith gives us this understanding of who God is and what he wants in our life, and that understanding of God becomes more important than, than life itself. Scripture's very clear on where we get the courage to live out our faith in Christ in the story that we have been given. For example, we get courage to live out our life in Christ because we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. 
You see, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold just as a lion. As it says in Proverbs 28, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9, 2, we have courage to live this life that we are in from trusting God and hoping in him as we have been sharing the last few weeks. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all who hope in the Lord. In Psalm 31, 24, we have courage from being filled with the Spirit. As we sang today, thank God that he has left his Spirit with us. Amen? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness as it is in Acts 4. We have courage because God's promise is to be with us. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, from Joshua 1, 9. We have courage from knowing that the one with you is greater than the adversary. Second Chronicles 32, be strong and courageous, for the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. We have courage from being sure that God is sovereign in every battle. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight in 2 Samuel 10. We have courage through prayer. In Psalm 138.3, Oh, the Lord I called, you answered me. You made me bold and strength is in my soul. And we have courage from the examples of of other believers, as we've seen in the book of Hebrews, as Paul mentions in Philippians 1, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. People saw how Paul was living in chains and said, if my brother can do that, I can do that. Now, here's the truth in all of this, in all of our stories. There's this sinful impulse that happens to all of us, and it's called self-preservation. We want to preserve ourselves. And that kills courage all the time. It kills courage. But when our personal fate is no longer what we're living for, when my own desired life scenario of whatever perfect is isn't up to me anymore, but I'm going to live for God instead, God fills you with overcoming courage. Whatever situation, whatever tipping point that you're about on in your life, that's where God deepens your faith. What he is accomplishing in you is more significant than any passing mood that you may be a part of right now. None of you are moody, right? Not, not at all. Look beyond yourself and look to him. He will be awakening your faith when you look to him. He will be making you a, he will be making you a living proof to others that his salvation is worth everything. Sometimes you may look at people in the past in your life that are Christians and go, man, I can never be like that person. And 
their greatness makes you feel inadequate sometimes. And stories of, you know, we can get up here and tell stories of pastors, missionaries, different people that have, uh, have lived for the Lord, and, and just incredible stories, right? And some of you may go, uh, man, I just don't stand for anything. Man, look how they took the hits, but man, I, I just don't. I'm just going to, I guess, just sit back and ride life out. But God is saying to each one of us in this section of Scripture and throughout the story of God, His story, the one that we are to be living for to give glory to Him, God is saying, look to Jesus. Right? That's, that's what Scripture says. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus overcame for us, and he is able to help us in our weakness today. God is positioning us to play a role in his story. And that changes everything for me. Right? He is positioning me to play a role in his story. He's the one that's developing the battles that we can dimly comprehend. And this world culture that we live in every day, where we encounter evil every time we turn around, where we live in this culture that says you have no lasting significance, so just grab what you can while you're around because God's not going to come through for you because there's really no God. You have to make it your own way with your own rules. That's a demoralizing lie. See, those who live by godly wisdom end up being full and joyful. Those that live by the world's wisdom, like I just shared, end up with emptiness. Isaiah tells us this morning of a man who found courage. In the, in the tipping point of his story, his journey through this world, Hezekiah found courage. Let's read about it now in verses 8 through 13 together. Then Rabshaka returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he heard them say concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sepervine, and of Hena and of Eva? The king of Assyria is continuing his war of nerves against Hezekiah with a rumor that a hostile army from Egypt is heading uh, Assyria's way, he doesn't want Hezekiah back in Jerusalem thinking he's going to get off the hook. So that's the background going on here. So even as the king of Assyria is bracing himself for a possible attack, he sends this threatening letter to Hezekiah to keep him on the defensive. So the king of 
Assyria is brash enough to identify exactly what's at stake in all of this maneuvering when you hear that what Daniel read there in verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. God had assured Hezekiah that he would get rid of the king of Assyria. Back in in verse 7 that we read last week and discussed last week, I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. In that preceding verse. But the Assyrian king is saying, don't buy it. Don't buy it. Don't believe any messages you're getting from God. You're still in my clutches, and I'll get around to you when I feel like it. He's going, has has any other nation thwarted my power? Has any other God with a little g defeated me? Has any other king in all of these pursuits that I've been through Has any other king, Hezekiah, resisted me? Think about it, Hezekiah. Think about it. And in his own weird way, the Assyrian king is being actually helpful to Hezekiah. Because he puts at the center of the question the heart of our struggles. It's the same one that we have to answer every single day in our lives. Will we stake our lives on the truthfulness of God? Will I stake my life on the truthfulness of God? It's God's integrity that's on the line in what becomes of us. If we're living for him, it's, it's, it's his deal. Do we believe that God will defend himself by defending us? Are we allies with God because we know that he is allied with us the threat in verse 13 that's given would be the most effective if Hezekiah had known the kings that the Assyrian king was talking about because he would have been able to picture in his mind's eye the them being prisoners impaled killed because that's what the Assyrians did to their victims and our invading king is telling Hezekiah really is Judah next is Judah next but by faith Hezekiah doesn't let the Assyrian king change the subject he's not intimidated that this struggle is all about his own personal fate What is in the very forefront of Hezekiah's thinking actually is the reputation of God in this world. So, as we will see here in the next few verses, Hezekiah goes to God. So let's read together verses 14. Through 35. And it's a long section of scripture, but we need to keep it all in one piece because this is how it went. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand and all that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed, and against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? Though your servants, you, through your servants you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the soles of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago... I did it from ancient times. I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed, put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So Hezekiah goes up to the house of the Lord, spreads out the letter from the Assyrian king before the Lord, right? Prays it through. And that's significant, everyone. Hezekiah responded to the first threat from Assyria by going into the house of the Lord and by asking Isaiah for a word from God. That's good. His faith was coming alive. But now Hezekiah is going deeper. Back in chapter 36, the powers that be could see that Hezekiah was trusting both Egypt and the Lord. But this time, the king of Assyria mocks Hezekiah's faith. He doesn't even mention Egypt. Why? Because by now, Hezekiah is trusting in God alone. His faith is not complicated by parallel alliances. It's straightforward. It's, it's me and God. His passion is now the glory of God. And you see that there in verses 16 and, and 17. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the, the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. It's one, right? You alone. Hezekiah is saying, Lord, this isn't about me. This is a direct attack on you. You can't let this letter go answered. It's kind of like a certain ad that a governor from a certain state is running in another state right now that says, Love thy neighbor with scripture verse on it in a direct attack against those that believe abortion is wrong. This governor, who will go unnamed but is the governor of our state, <laughs> is using scripture to attack those that believe in God. 
and believe. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, this is exactly parallel to this, everyone. Because our Assyrian king here is, is throwing fire on gas on the fire with Hezekiah, mocking his God. And you're like, that's not ended well for anyone that mocks God. You just kind of like, you know, if you're standing next to a person that's mocking God, what's our natural reaction as believers? We, we know what's going to happen. It's like, you don't mess with God. You just don't. Hezekiah's going, you can't let this go unanswered. And this is why I'm asking you to save us, because this Assyrian king is going through lands and blowing up people. And now he's saying he's going to do it to us, and he's going to mock you in the process. And that's a pretty different way of praying. Hezekiah now is praying in a different way. Hezekiah understands that the meaning of his life, his existence, is now a platform to display the glory of God in this world. He's not treating God as a means to his own ends, but as a worthy end of all things. He's not praying, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? He's praying, Lord, when are you going to glorify yourself in this? He's not worried about his personal fate anymore. He's not worried about the alliances that he thought for a while would mean or do something. He's released all of that. He's released from his own sinful prison. He has become a God-centered person at this point. And he is courageously going forward because of it. And we need to be people like that. We need to see our lives in this way. Why are we here? Well, we're not here to play in some sandbox of our own little making, but to be living proof that God saves sinners. That's why I'm here. I am living proof that God saves sinners. You, as a believer, are living proof that God saves sinners. And our story is such that we can look at people and say, you didn't know me then. Or maybe they did, and, they're, and because you knew me then, look at what's happened now. And it's not because of me, it's because of what he's done. And we have to understand in the question of why is God there, God is not there to service our own convenience and our own selfish dreams. God is there to display his glory in our salvation. And when his glory becomes our passion, we are not robbed, we are not diminished in our life. Rather, we are now dignified, we overcome evil. Because evil is the secondary, parasitic, temporary, junky thing. Only God is ultimate and final and true and forever. And we need to let his ultimacy, I don't know if that's a word, but I just made it up. We need to let his ultimacy change the whole agenda of our lives. It's like, Scott, every once in a while you say stuff that our governor does that I thought in churches we weren't supposed to say stuff about that. No. I'm supposed to correct, rebuke, encourage as a believer, right? I need to do all of those things. And if someone is saying something that's totally blasphemous about who God is and what the truth is, my job is to be bold enough to say, that's baloney. 
Don't believe it. It's wrong. Don't vote for a goofball that says that stuff. You're making me uncomfortable. God's in a pretty good place of making all of us uncomfortable, isn't he? God turns the fire up on us as believers and refines us and gives us the courage and the strength to stand up in front of people and say, this is wrong and this is right. And the purpose of it is not to thump people, but to give them an understanding of what is wrong and what is right and please choose God and his way. Because his way will help you understand that you will not be diminished. You will now be dignified. You will overcome evil. God will defend his own glory through you. When you serve him. God-centeredness is... Very important on our part, isn't it? Now, what's even more interesting is God-centeredness of God. God-centeredness of God, God-centeredness of himself, is good news for you. Because when he says things like, I am sending my son for you while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you, that means... That at the end of the day, God wants to exalt God through someone like me who is a sinner. He wants to change my life. He wants to give me Christ. He gives me a new life, a new hope. So that makes me, and maybe you get caught into this, that makes me stop praying like, Lord, I want to... Lord, would you just make my life a little bit better? We need to stop praying like that. It makes me stop praying like that when I think about what God's about. It makes me stop praying, Lord, I I want you to make the people around me a little bit better. Lord, I I would love for uh, an ideal, I would love an ideal job, Lord. I, I, you know, fill in the blanks, right? When you pray... That way, you can end up frustrated because God doesn't subordinate himself to a human agenda. What I need to start doing, what you need to start doing, what all of us should be doing when we see what Hezekiah is doing here, Lord, I just want you to be God. I want you to be God to me. I want you to be God in my life. I want you to be God in my problems. I want you to be God to show that you save sinners. We have to learn what what Paul said. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And that is our walk with Christ. If you trust God's goodness enough to pray for his triumph, God is going to give you everything you long for in your deepest intentions, even if it doesn't quite match what you think the world is looking for. The way we respond to challenges determines whether we're confirming the world's suspicions that Christianity is just another self-power trip? Or whether we will surprise them by proving Christianity is about finding the glory of Christ in everything. When we remove ourselves from the center of the equation and we erect the cross, cross in the center of our life. In verses 21 through 29, the, the divine king takes the bat out and says, Okay, king of Assyria, I have a few words for you. Look, look back at verse 23. 
whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lift up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. O king of Assyria, who have you picked a fight with? And what offends the Holy One is pride. What is the original sin? Pride. I can be like God. Matter of fact, I can be better than God because I know how to live my life better than God knows how to give life. Because the Assyrian king is saying, yeah, nothing's going to stop me. Just deal with it. Nothing's going to stop me. I can do whatever I want, wherever, whenever. And that is the pride of, is the sin of all sins. It's the perfect blasphemy, if there can be such a term. Because it denies the perfect God. In verses 26 through 29 that we read, God asserts his ultimate being. Kind of the, the, the string of victories the Assyrian army had chalked up. God says, oh, by the way, that was all my plan. That was my plan. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I, not you, O king of Assyria, what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. The Bible's uniting human initiative with divine sovereignty. In verse 21, God says to Hezekiah, because you have prayed to me, Human responsibility is real. What we do and don't do matters. We're not just puppets. What if Hezekiah had not prayed to God? Verse 26, God asserts his ultimate being over human actions. He's like, oh, king of Assyria, you've been, you've been scoring victory after victory, but God, God is the one who planned it, accomplished it. Divine sovereignty is real. The purpose of God is what explains the twists and turns of history. And we see in Isaiah's prophecy and his reasoning here, that both human responsibility and divine sovereignty are real, they're compatible, they're best friends. And Isaiah doesn't hesitate to record it. From his position of sovereignty, God opposes the human pride, scarring the face of human history in verse 29, because you raged against me. I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And Isaiah is explaining, kind of coming as close as we really get in a lot of Scripture to the mystery of God's sovereignty interfacing with human responsibility. In some sense, at least here, it's like a man riding a horse. I'm going to put my bit in your mouth. The Lord rides, rides the horse of history with all of its relentless energy, but all the while... Who is still in control? Human pride is not going to throw God off the horse of human history. Of his history. But God does give grace to the humble. And who was the humble person in this case? Hezekiah. Hezekiah had turned to God in absolute trust in verses 30 through 32. Judah had lost, as you will read here, many of its opportunities by not trusting God. And the nation is diminished because of that. They, they've paid a price for being allergic to God. But this time, Hezekiah turns back to God on God's terms. And God honors Hezekiah's faith. 
God promises to sustain a remnant. The Assyrian invasion, the aftermath, all that, there's going to be a remnant. It'll be a sign revealing that what gets us through is not our zeal for God, but his zeal for us. Even when we lose sight of him, God remains eager for us. Even a belated faith, God doesn't stand there and go, it's about time. Even a belated faith finds him ready to save you. Verses 33 through 35 reveal what motivates God in all of his ways. I will defend this city to save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. So why does God put up with us? Have you ever wondered that question? <laughs> like, why, why does God put up with me? Why does God defend me? There are so many times I blow it. Well, it's not because of anything in us, but it's for his own sake, for the sake ultimately of David, Jesus Christ. God is committed to us, not because of us, but because of our substitute, Jesus. That is our position with God. I will always love the fact that Jesus alone is my advocate. Now what's interesting here, and I'm going to have Daniel read the last three verses. Last two verses, sorry. No, it's three. And it's kind of like an afterthought to the, to the story. It's kind of almost like a, oh, by the way, this is what happened. So Daniel, go ahead and read those three. And, and this is what happened. And I want you to understand it as he reads it as the king of the universe against the king of Assyria. Okay, here we go. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramalek and Sherezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Okay, so if we were making the movie, this would be the longest scene, the battle scene, right? But when God wages a battle, what happens? Woof! It's, right, that was 13 seconds of the movie. It's kind of this matter-of-fact way. Oh, by the way, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 troops. One against 185,000. Victory was absolute, complete, instantaneous. Very little detail. Why? God doesn't need a lot of detail to just go, so be it. Isn't it interesting, when I was thinking about that this week, isn't it interesting, we have a little more detail about the creation of the world but not a ton. When you, when you think about it, we have, we have some specifics in the days and what God did. But there's just a lot of it that you're like, but, but, but explain mosquitoes. <laughs> explain how that fits in. Explain, you know, there's just all of these things. But when God created, what happened? Woof! 
created. Didn't take millions of years. He chose 24 hour periods. He created. He chose to take care of this in one swoop. The real drama was back in verses 14 through 35 when Hezekiah and God were doing serious business with each other. The real drama in your life is when you get down on your knees and say yes to Jesus. When everything changes. When you give control to your life to him. And our king goes off back to his home in Nineveh and really the perfect irony in all of this is this one sentence for me. Just as Hezekiah went into the house of his God and got help, the king of Assyria goes into the house of his God and gets killed. End of story. The final blow fell in 681 B.C., about 20 years later. And maybe during that time, people back in Judah were wondering if God's word would come true. When in verse 7, it said, I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And guess what happened? About 20 years later. There's a, we're going to wrap up with this. There's a poem that was written um, just after the, Titanic went down in 1912. And it includes these verses. It's not the complete part, but I thought it was pretty interesting when I read it this week. And as the smart ship grew in stature, talking about when the Titanic was being built, and as the smart ship grew in stature, grace and hue, and shadowy silence distance grew that iceberg too. Alien they seem to be, no mortal eye can see the intimate welding of their later history. Assyria was the Titanic of antiquity. God kept all of his promises. He brought together unlikely turns of events. God loves surprising outcomes. Because it shows his glory. One last history note for you. The Assyrians loved in history to brag about their exploits. But very interestingly, the National Archives do not record any of their defeats. The king of Assyria actually wrote the story of a siege of Jerusalem this way. So this is outside of the Bible. This is Assyrian historical record. Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. In other words, I have him trapped. And we saw all of that, right? We saw all of that. But then there's total silence over the rest of the story. Now, you could argue, well, he didn't have a chance to write it. He was dead. <laughs> True. The Old Testament, though, tells us the truth. It puts it right out in the open about how God's people were slow to believe and Assyria's humiliating defeat. Why? Because the Bible is not about man's glory. When you think about it, isn't it interesting how much of the Old and New Testament talks about man's failures with our walk with God? Because it's all about God's glory. So there are two ways you can live as we wrap this up, as I said that now for the third time, I think. You can hide the ugly details of your life and try to get God to kind of 
be your pal in assembling a little personal world of make-believe for your own reputation or comfort. Or you can let God tell his story in your life. You can bow to his will, promote his glory, whatever adjustments that may require. It's because his glory is your salvation. If you choose the first way, you will be frustrated. You'll just be frustrated. God will always seem to be against you. You will have no forward thinking, fortitude, anything. But if you choose God's way, he will draw near with incredible mercy. You will become living proof that God is the true Savior. Every one of us would like the last sentence and the last chapter of our lives to read, and they live happily ever after. But sometimes courage demands that you jeopardize that happy ending. What you decide at pivotal moments depends on how you define life. The world says, being a person that loves musicals, way back when there was a musical that I didn't like called Oklahoma. (laughs) But it had this catchy song in it. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. I will tell you right now, if you embrace that idea, your happiness will be forever brittle and insecure. You will have no courage to risk anything. But there is another happiness. And I also learned it as a song growing up. But it was words that Jesus said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And then we tag, Allelu, Allelu, yeah. Matthew 6, 33. Which one would you rather sing? Do you see how he arranges things both for his glory and for your joy? Will you trust him with a audacious faith and live for his glory? If you will, your life, your life will be secure. Your happiness even will be secure as his glory because the world can't do anything to you. They can kill you, but they can't kill God. And the last time I checked, I get to be with him forever and ever because he saved me. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. And as we wrap up here in communion,